The impeachment might be over, but there's still plenty of dysfunction to go around. The White House press office has snuffed out its first scandal. The Lincoln Project looks like it just had a night out at Ford's Theater. And Hollywood scandals are popping up like wildfire. This is The Huddle. Can't we all just get along? Welcome to another week of The Huddle. I'm Brendan Kanaki, bringing you inner circle analysis of news, politics, and anything worth tweeting about. We've got Mark Ross with us, of course, communication strategist, outdoor enthusiast, and local cynic to the Washington, D.C. area. Mark, we wrapped up the Trump impeachment trial this past week again. Politico said that this might finally be the time when uh, Joe Biden actually becomes president, free of the shadow of Donald Trump. What are your impressions on, on, on this final stage of the acquittal, on um, where we go from here? What, is the, what does the political right do? Is there any future for the GOP? <laughs> you want me to answer all these questions? Uh, let's go to the impeachment trial. I mean, the tr- this trial is over, but new trials are going to happen. We know that's the case. I mean, even Senator Moscow Mitch, Mitch McConnell, who voted to acquit the president, Trump, got up on the floor of the Senate. <laughs> he said he did do it. There's criminal and there's civil opportunities to take this kind of trial. Um, certainly the Southern District of New York. I mean, Trump's going to be on trial in one jurisdiction or another for the next Two years, for sure. That's what we know. I think what's also interesting, as promptly as the Spanish Speaker Nancy Pelosi rightly said, we're going to put together a blue ribbon panel commission to study what the hell happened on January 6th. You know, one of the first questions is, why didn't, you know, why weren't there more police? Obviously, we had a whole of government failure, as we talked about. Um, But I don't know. I have no idea what's happening with the Republican Party. You know, uh, Lindsey Graham is saying, you know, we need to be Trump plus, which I don't know what the hell that means. Tim Alberta did this amazing piece that posted last Friday in Politico. It's an opus. I mean, it must be 20,000 words. I have no idea. Took me 47 minutes to read. But it's all about Nikki Haley and where she goes from here. You know, is she pro-Trump? Is she anti-Trump? I got the sense she's jello. She's going to do whatever the hell she needs to do to try to find a way to get elected in 2024. And that's probably like the state of the Republican Party. I have no idea where the party's going to go. I'm glad I don't have to figure it out. But Trump will not be going away anytime soon. That's my prediction. What are you thinking? Every Everybody wanted to get rid of this guy. And yet we can't stop talking about him. This is one of these things I, I do agree with you. Pretty much people are going to sway whichever way gets them elected. A few weeks ago on this program, you said we've got four minor parties crammed into a two-party system. <laughs> this week, Gallup tends to agree with you. Uh, it said that 50% of people responding to their latest poll identify as independents for the first time, which is a bit odd, and that it's a 25-25 split for Republicans and Democrats. But more than 60% of people favor the idea of a third party. So do you think that it's, it's going to be about reuniting or fracturing to get us through the next election cycle? I think, I mean, listen, I think the two parties are going to be there, you know, just because of inertia and all kinds of reasons. I mean, they basically control the ballot process, but, um, you know, they're both going to be big tents. The political parties aren't as strong as they used to be. There are no more backroom smoke-filled rooms where people decide who's going to run. Any candidate now can raise money, you know, low dollar, 5, 10, 15, 25 bucks at will across the uh, spectrum. 
you know, I know we're going to talk about the Lincoln Project. I mean, the Lincoln Project raised $90 million, right? Well, these guys, these guys wanted to be the new future of the Republican Party. And now I, I think uh, four of them are being investigated for criminal, uh, for criminal wrongdoing. So at this point, it feels well, like that's not the future of the Republican Party. Well, I think uh, it was the Lincoln Project. I, I thought they wanted to be a media company like Axios. I mean, that, like once again, we're, we're seeing the merging of entrepreneurship, the ability to raise money quickly. I mean, media, you know, the parties aren't going away. Like that's the thing. It's just like, who is the membership of those parties? And if they really matter. In fact, in California, the largest state in the union, uh, the th- Republicans in that state are the third party. Independence, to your point, is the second largest group identified voters in that state. Um, but, you know, we're going to have parties. There's going to be caucuses. There's going to be primaries. And I think what's going to be interesting, you know, we've got two governor's races in New Jersey and in Virginia this year. Maybe they'll give us some sign on what the hell to expect in 2022 and 2024. There's there's going to be a, a lot of investigation into people's beliefs and, and how they choose to express them coming up. Uh, speaking of expression, I want to change gears a little bit. Um, we did see our first pseudo scandal coming out of the White House this past week. There was some controversy <laughs> about an interaction between a, a political reporter and a deputy press secretary. Initially, he was suspended for using some threatening and misogynistic language, but he ultimately resigned. And as a parallel, while this was all happening, a new documentary from Hulu was getting a lot of attention for the Free Britney movement. That's Britney Spears. Uh, it was also highlighting a lot of atrocious clips from comedians and interviewers from the 90s of how they were treating the young female singer. Mark, the question that I have in both of these cases, how do we set a path forward for a relationship between the media and the subject on the other side, whether it's pop culture or political, because it seems like this adversarial relationship between the press and who they cover is getting worse and worse. And we don't know what's safe to say anymore. I remember when I first got to DC in the 90s, 1996, and I had this out here job. And then we sat down, and the first thing they told me, after they, sh- they didn't even tell me where the restaurant was or how to get the pencil or whatever. They said, if we ever see your name in the Washington Post, you're out of here. You know, I think, you know, what that, that should be the standard. If you say something that stupid and that ridiculous, I was surprised that it took DJ uh, 48 hours to resign. You should have done it promptly. As for Brittany, I haven't seen the documentary. It's getting rave reviews. I see that Netflix is going to also do a documentary on the subject. Uh, speaking of DJs, Justin Timberlake promptly apologized to both Brittany and to uh, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. And you just can't act like a bonehead. You know, I think that's the, the general rule of thumb. You don't act like a bonehead. What's your advice See, on dealing you, with women in the workplace? I mean, you're, be, you're being very logical. You're, you're being very logical. You know, this was a, a documentary that, or a, a movement that first started out examining the idea of how we treat people who have mental health problems. That was the idea of the conservatorship that was placed over Brittany after she had uh, a bit of a breakdown in 2007 following bad press, a short-lived marriage in Vegas. And now it's become a whole bigger discussion point about how we treat young people, how we treat famous people, how we treat females, how we treat 
you know, uh, so many different uh, discussions. And, and I think the question at hand is, are we just reaching a point of complete incivility that nobody knows how to interact with each other anymore? Uh, because like you said, I think the, it's just that simple. Don't be a bonehead. Don't be an asshole. I think what's interesting, getting back to young people, just this week, our friend Claudia Conway, there was a teaser clip of her auditioning, and both, both of her parents apparently are in the show as well, in American Idol. So, you know, I th there's a lot of mixed messages, but getting back to the salient point, don't be a bonehead, and certainly don't be a bonehead with a reporter. There are women out there, very professional. Don't be a bonehead. That's my message. I... <laughs> I, I certainly don't have all the answers. I did see the American Idol clip. It, it does raise questions whether or not we should be exploiting a 16-year-old and a fragile relationship with her political parents in order to try and get viewers on ABC. But I'll leave that up to the network. Mark, I know we want to go on to an even broader issue for the day. Why don't you tell us about our guest? So our guest is the foremost expert on the first ladies. And who better to be in the inner circle than a first lady? We're gonna look at every first lady as we're gonna cover as much territory as we can from Martha Washington to today's first lady, Dr. Jill Biden. For ages, first ladies have been partners to their husbands in setting the national agenda. Our guest today knows a lot about that. We've got Andrew Oak, he's an author and historian who we call the first lady's man. He has previously worked on a series for C-SPAN about the presidential wives. And he is the author of Unusual for Their Time on the Road with America's First Ladies, volumes one and two. Andrew, thank you for joining us today on The Huddle. Brendan, great to be here on The Huddle with you. Well, you know, this is, is such an a, a interesting topic to me. It's something you've put so much time in. Tell me, why first ladies? How did you first get the bug to explore kind of this other side of the White House? The, you know, outside of the president, this is one of the most visible people when a new administration comes in. And I know you looked all the way back to Martha Washington. Yeah, no, Brendan, I tell you, um, you know, being a, a television producer and working in multimedia and Washington, D.C. and politics, as, as you and I both have, um, I was in the right place at the right time. A friend of mine that I'd worked with on Capitol Hill was uh, producing television for C-SPAN, and they were working on a project, sort of a follow-up to their presidential series. My reputation for being kind of a, a, a really uh, uh, just go for broke in the field and work from sun up to sundown, and I don't need a large crew, which was great because C-SPAN didn't have a big budget for it. So they gave me a camera, a couple microphones, a couple lights, and for one year and two months, I traveled the country back and forth, pinballing up, down, north, south, east, west to go to every home library, church, school, birthplace, cemetery, train station, general store, and every place in between for every first lady, Martha Washington through Michelle Obama at the time. These women, their influence, their image from the very beginning, you've mentioned ages and ages and ages. George Washington could not have made America, could not have staged the revolution, could not have done this without Martha Washington's money, influence, advice, 
counsel. He had her come at great personal risk and peril, uh, difficult times to nearly every winter encampment of the Revolutionary War, and not just to throw parties. And parties back then were even more. Dinners, that's where, you know, there was not... The mail wasn't great. There was no electricity. There weren't telephones, you telegrams, nothing. These political events, these dinners, these parties, these religious gatherings, these ceremonies, that's where decisions were made. Strategy was put forth and decisions were made to, 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 to revolutionize the colonies into America. These women are that important and they made me the first ladies man. And there was so much material that I had that didn't make it into the series, I had to start speaking about it and I had to start writing the books and that's where you get me right now today. Well, that is, you know, like you said, these are just fascinating individuals and, and I, I have to jump right in with, with our newest first lady, Dr. Jill Biden. She made history as the second lady when she kept her teaching position and now she's making more history by doing the same as the first lady. How groundbreaking is this for people to get used to the idea of a strong, capable first lady who we remember, obviously, there was pushback when people saw Hillary Clinton, you know, getting involved in her husband's presidency. Notoriously, um, Nancy Reagan caused a stir when she was talking to psychics while at the same time whispering in Ronnie's ear. So how is it that we, we have this idea of a capable first lady who's doing things? Well, you, you bring up some really interesting points. And, and keep in mind, uh, uh, human beings, and particularly Americans, are very, very fickle. What is good for one is not always good for another. And historically, this goes back to the beginning of time as well, Martha Washington on through Dr. Jill Biden, that you can, you can champion and celebrate one first lady for what four years later you will literally criticize and run through the ringer and drag through the mud for the next. And it's just whether you voted for him, whether you liked their husband, whether you don't. And this has been going on for a long time. Uh, you know, Melania Trump got a lot of grief when she didn't move to Washington, D.C. immediately. Well, you know what? This is not a paid or elected role. I'm always going to play both sides of this coin and try and give this 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 historical perspective and 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 relevance to what we're actually saying about these women and say, hey, you know what? It, it was okay when. Well, I mean, think about it. Thomas Jefferson didn't have a wife. His daughter was his official White House hostess. And there's four, five, six, some others. The most recent one hasn't been since Woodrow Wilson when his first wife died and his oldest daughter, Margaret, was the official White House hostess. But there's been uh, widower presidents. There's been bachelor presidents. And this is an unpaid and unelected role that we criticize and expect so much for. And there's no job description. They're, they're, they don't have to do anything. Just because they married a guy that, that, that beat all odds, I mean, you got a better chance of getting struck by lightning, eaten by a shark, or winning the lottery than you do winning to become president of the United States. And not all these women go in open, open, you know, you know, with, with open eyes into this when they meet their husbands. Now, Jill Biden, um, you know, you bring up some good points there. First of all, Dr. Jill Biden. I welcomed her into the White House just like I did with Melania Trump and just like I did Michelle Obama and just like I'll do with whoever else is next and next and next. The first ladies man always wins an election because there's always a first lady. And when there becomes a first gentleman, I'm going to win even bigger because then what are we going to do? We got nothing to talk about except first ladies and first spouses. So I look very much forward to that. But, you know, I went to college. A lot of people went to college. A lot of people have within their own family people with educational doctorates. Some people have 
uh, uh, ceremonial doctorates, and, and we refer to them as doctors. But somehow, if you didn't vote for Joe Biden, you are inside out about the fact that we are calling this woman Dr. Jill Biden. Her keeping her day job? Now, this is, I, you know, there's two sides to this coin as there, as there are most. You know, you could argue, does she have time? Is it the responsible thing to do with secret service? And is it going to be disruptive to class? And how involved will she be able to do? Because the first lady is required to travel a lot and things like that. So there is a drawback to this. And every first lady prior to her has dropped their day job. You know, the first first lady with a day job goes all the way back to Abigail Fillmore. She was a teacher and a, and a, and a, and a tutor and a librarian. Um, you know, and, and she gave up her day job. Didn't, didn't maybe mean as much back then as it did now. Women's careers weren't as expansive as they are now, but it's still her career and her job. And every first lady who's had a day job since then has given it up to focus on this. So can she, will she? Well, you know, that, that's yet to be, to be seen. I see no reason why if a, a first lady or first spouse wants to keep her day job and keep it relevant and, and keep contributing in that way, um, why she shouldn't, um, you know, and, and people that, that like Joe Biden and voted for Joe Biden and like Dr. Jill Biden, um, you know, are going to support that. And people that voted the other way are, are not. And that's just what it comes down to. So Dr. Biden, you know, she, she is certainly the, you know, probably the closest inner circle uh, when it comes to her husband, uh, President Joe Biden. And I know she's going to help shape this national agenda a bit. One of the things she's made no secret of is her choice to try to reprioritize family. Uh, mm -hmm. When I had had a chance to interview her several years ago uh, as the second lady, she mentioned that they were still trying to do family dinners every Sunday. We've seen, obviously, a lot of the grandchildren here since uh, President Biden took office. And now um, Dr. B has vowed to restart the Joining Forces Initiative, which is all about military families, uh, which she started with Michelle Obama. Tell me a little bit about how a first lady takes on those causes that are going to define their role in the administration, the East Wing office. Uh, I think it, they said that uh, Dr. Biden had hired almost twice as many staffers, direct staffers, as uh, Melania or even Michelle Obama had. Well, Dr. Biden has been a, a politician's wife, an activist, and along with that, a teacher. So these all play very well into each other. Again, going back historically, since the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, any first lady that's been involved in that has always tried to do things for families, wanted to take care of people that, that, that people don't always have a voice and give a voice for. Dr. Biden rolls into this with years and years of experience. As far as her being the closest confidant, that goes back again to George Washington. Um, you know, uh, uh, he had his wife, he had Martha Washington come to winter encampments of the Revolutionary War, nearly all 13, so he could confide in her, so she could talk to her. Uh, Ronald Reagan was closest with Nancy Reagan. Uh, Rosalind Carter attended nearly every cabinet meeting and administration meeting. You go back to Ida McKinley, when her husband was governor of Ohio, he would, he would catch his foot at the door, his office door, as she would sit outside of his office door and greet his guests to leave it open. So after the guest would leave and say goodbye to Mrs. McKinley, he would have her in and say, Ida, what did you think? I mean, these men have been consulting with their wives from day one and nearly everyone. Uh, Wilson, I mentioned earlier, Wilson's second wife, Edith Wilson, 
even took over a lot of the duties of the presidency when he had a debilitating stroke, which kept him out of the public eye for months and months. But even before that, they would take all of the White House papers. And this is still the, 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 the little organizer, the file cabinet with a handle on top, the little mobile you know, filing system they had that would start in the Oval Office with President Wilson. They would carry it upstairs every night into the residence. And Mrs. Edith Wilson would sit and prioritize the work of the day and what would be going on. This is not new. They have these conversations. They have access to arguably the most powerful man in the world. And that makes them the most powerful and influential women, unpaid, unelected in the world. So Jill Biden starting out with this family and pulling things together, you know, we just because of uh, the, we're over-informed and because of the media and because of opinion and editorializing and Wikipedia and Facebook and social media, everything, there are a lot of opinions out there and there's a lot of people that are very critical and there's a lot of anger. We're getting more and more divided as we go to each election, it seems, each election cycle, everyone says, is the worst, is the worst, is the worst. Well, I'll bet you Andrew Jackson would argue and say that his election in the 1820s was the worst because the stress of it and what they wrote about his wife in the papers from the John Quincy Adams, uh, um, you know, super PACs of the day, they said horrible things about his wife and she had a heart attack a, a couple of weeks before he was going to inaugurate. Politics is rough business, but as we get into the era of technology and the area of, of over-communication and over-informing, all of this stuff comes back twofold. But Dr. Biden is no stranger to this. She's coming out strong with unity. She put hearts out on the White House lawn. You know, I mean, how can you be upset? She's got dogs. There's dogs in the White House. I'll make this point, too. Historically speaking, and this goes all the way back to Garfield, even before then, Francis Cleveland, who had young children in the White House. You go to the, the, the Kennedys, the, 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 the Bushes, um, the, 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 the Obamas. We love to see that nuclear family, that happy family in the White House. And when you've got a, a husband, a wife, children, grandchildren. So Dr. Biden has got everything in place. She's intelligent. She's been in politics for a while. She knows the harshness. She knows how you can celebrate that. And she's really set up for success here to do some wonderful things if we can get a side of that criticizing the wife of the president who you didn't vote for. There are so many of these examples uh, time over time. I'm going to bring back in Mark, who himself is a bit of a historian. Mark, what do you think? Andrew, this is so great. Yeah, I'm an uh, amateur War of 1812 historian. Uh, there's like seven of us in the U.S., but it's a great, great conflict. Um, I do have some questions, obviously, about Dolly Madison. Before that, where did the, hon the honorific come from, First Lady? Is it something from European courts? It seems very regal, very serious. When did, the, when did we start using the term? That's a great question. And it's actually, it's the less regal choice of what we were left with options. You know, young America, colonial America, revolutionary America was trying so hard to separate ourselves from everyone else and make this footprint. They didn't even know what to call someone a president. Certainly they weren't going to go with king and queen and things. But, but this is into the, the, to, to the middle 1800s before we hear any sign of this. And, you know, everyone wants to be the first or the biggest, or the last, if that benefits them, or, or you know, wherever it fits into your benefit, you want to you want to be in that pecking order. And there's a lot of people that claim to be the first first lady, and it goes down like this: the first woman to be called first lady 
who was in the White House at the time, was President James Buchanan's niece, Harriet Lane. James Buchanan is the only president never to marry, a bachelor. So she's the first woman who was in the White House serving as the official White House hostess or in the position we know as the first lady to be called first lady. But historians and experts and researchers will say she wasn't the, the wife of the president, so she can't be first lady. Well, so then the next woman who actually was a first lady to be referred to as first lady was your favorite Dolly Madison. However, however, Mark, there's a twist. She was called that at her funeral by President Zachary Taylor. So does it count? Some say no, because she wasn't the sitting first lady married to her husband, James Madison, in the White House at the time that she was called. But the first first lady that was actually married to a president who was alive while she was alive in the White House serving as president was Lucy Hayes. I love it. I'm going to win some uh, Jeopardy money on that. <laughs> Let me. So let's get to uh, Dolly Madison. Obviously, very famous. War of 1812. The British storm the White House. She saves the famous George Washington portrait. But hail to the chief. Her husband was quite diminutive. Can you talk a little bit about where hail to the chief came from? Hail to the Chief is reportedly first played, and again, there's, there's contention. Everyone wants to be the first. Sarah Polk is apparently the first first lady to play Hail to the Chief as associated with her husband coming into a room, and they prove that by showing huh. they've got it, I've held it, the music book that has Hail to the Chief that was a hymn that she used to play as a child um, and, 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 and would have done that first for, for her husband, although some other people claim that as well. Getting back to, to a little, you know, what, what Brendan was talking about and forming policy and things like that, Dolly Madison did it. Dolly Madison helped rebuild our country after the War of 1812. You probably know, but not all the viewers, listeners will know, that after that White House was burned, she had to set up camp, basically, in the Octagon House across the street in Lafayette Park. Um, and, and, and one of the things that attracted her to the octagon house, the, the foyer that you walked into was the shape of an octagon. And she said, no one could be stuck in a corner. Everyone would have to talk. Diplomatic negotiations that happened in the upstairs second floor dining room, private dining room of this octagon house that reshaped a brand new country that the complete carpet was pulled out from under even before the carpet was really tacked down under it. Absolutely love it. Those are great stories. Um, let's flash forward to current. You know, we've had one recent first lady run for president. Uh, you know, Michelle Obama's doing stadium tours, like selling out. Can you talk about kind of the recent like celebrity aspect, the bigger than life personalities we're having with our first ladies? Sure. I mean, you got a lot of this that started really with Nancy Reagan. She comes from Hollywood. She knows how to work pop culture. She's sitting on Mr. T's lap at Christmas time. <laughs> toys to kiss. She goes on different strokes, you know, goes on TV. Um, uh, Charles Barkley held her up at an NBA game. Tiny little Nancy Reagan does slam dunk a just say no basketball. Jacqueline Kennedy did it, you know, with the, with the tour of the White House. And if these women are in the right place at the right time with the right technology, I mean, some say, it's why Nixon lost to JFK in the first place, because you look at those debate tapes and Nixon's falling apart and 
Kennedy looks like he just stepped off the cover of GQ. And everyone's like, okay, I'm going to vote for the good looking guy, not the guy that's sweating and, and falling apart, you know? Uh, so, so, so very interesting to see the way these ladies have been able to use technology, pop culture and things for their benefit. Now there's also, again, that flip side to the other coin. And this is what we were talking about previously. The last first lady in all my travels, all my research and, and all my theses that we liked pretty much across the board, no matter what we felt about her husband, was Laura Bush. Um, George Bush, a, a long drawn out 2000 election, hanging chads, all the other stuff. But, but, and then a lot of stuff happened during his administration. 9-11, real estate rose, real estate crashed, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the war on terror. Uh, you know, there was a lot of controversial things that happened during the Bush administration, which gave people, understandably, very strong feelings for or against George Bush. But no matter what you thought about George Bush, as is historically uh, prevalent and the norm, you loved Laura Bush. And she was able to do it without social media. <laughs> and she was able to do it without Facebook and without so many opinions, without so many unsubstantiated opinions, without as many people presenting themselves as experts or putting out facts. Enter Michelle Obama. There's the explosion of Facebook. There's the explosion of, of um, uh, uh, I guess, TikTok wasn't around by there. Snapchat and Instagram, Twitter, you know, everything where people can just say whatever they want unchecked. And from this, this almost cowardice, and, and secluded bunker of your home where no one's going to call you out. So you get Michelle Obama and Melania Trump are exclusively the two first first ladies to be heavily embroiled in this world of social media. And they get wrecked because they're, 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 the people don't like their husbands. These are different people with a lot of different opinions. Mrs. Ford did not do a lot of things to help her husband's political career, speaking out about women's rights and abortion and, and all kinds of things that got him roasted politically. He said in a 60 Minutes interview afterwards, he said, many times I agreed with my wife, but it didn't matter one way or the other because she would say whatever she wanted to say. Now, she got criticism for it, but not as much because we weren't, everyone didn't know about it. Absolutely fantastic. This is a great discussion. Brendan, what do you think? There's there's one there's one more thing I think we need to touch on. It's the uh, you know elephant not quite in the room yet, but I want to talk about second gentleman Douglas Emhoff. He is potentially right now he's broken the first ceiling. Miriam Webster has now added the term second gentleman into the uh, dictionary. It's paving the way for obviously what we would know first gentleman. Where where is the where's the last stage to this? Uh, Dr. Biden has has already uh, voiced that she wants to be as close with him as Michelle Obama was with her trying to build that camaraderie, have joint initiatives. What do we think about Doug Emhoff? <laughs> well, that's a great question. And, and, and I think that this is where Dr. Biden keeping her day job plays well. And here's why. It's looking at these spouses of our president and vice president as professionals, as real people, as more than a slogan or a tea party, or some are picking out China patterns or redecorating the White House. 
all of which is very important. When Edith Roosevelt created the East Wing and West Wing, it was revolutionary in the way we would look at the White House and how we would entertain and politic in the White House for various reasons. But, you know, the, the, the last election, we had a lot of chances for a lot of firsts and seconds and, and anomalies here. You know, uh, Melania Trump was the second foreign-born first lady. The only foreign-born first lady before that was Louisa Catherine Adams, uh, John Quincy Adams' wife in, in, the 18, in the early 1800s. One of the first questions I got was, what are we going to call Bill if Hillary wins? Hillary hadn't even announced that she was running yet. <laughs> I mean, everyone knew it was going to happen, but, but not only did she, but I, I said, well, here's what we're going to call him. We're going to call him President Clinton. And that blew everyone's minds, blew everyone's minds. So now think about Hillary Clinton. Uh, I, I've met her. You probably have too. I, everyone that I know her knows her. Everyone who I know that knows her says she's a wildly intelligent person. Whether you like her, voted for, support her or not, even people that don't like her that I know say she's smart. I'll give her that. So she's not going to create that power struggle by having first gentleman President Bill Clinton in the room with her when she's trying to be President Hillary Clinton. It's an automatic pull. It's, it's, it's a power struggle, whether, whether spoken, unspoken or not. So Bill Clinton would probably have not been a first, first gentleman in the sense that we expect a first gentleman to be. He's a former president. So the, the first chance of getting a traditional first gentleman or first spouse or first partner or however this shakes out down the road Doug Emhoff is setting that stage and setting that example. That was excellent. Andrew, thank you so much for giving us a lot to think about. The books are called Unusual for Their Time on the Road with America's First Ladies. And of course, they can find you at firstladiesman.com. For more information about all of the best presidential spouses through history. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Andrew, thanks. Brendan. That was a great chat. As you know, I love history. It was so great to hear from Andrew Oak directly. Uh, you know, he's definitely the foremost expert on the First Lady. Plenty more to cover there. It's a great discussion. But we are at that time of the show. You know what it is. It is time to reveal. Who do you want inside your huddle? Brennan, who's your pick? Mark, you know, this week, it's, it, it feels like it's, it's just too easy of a choice for me. I'm going to have to pick Oprah Winfrey. She is getting the coveted interview <laughs> with Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, and his wife, Meghan Markle, as they have revealed on Valentine's Day that they are expecting another child. This is, of course, going to be... Uh, one of the more dramatic and expected interviews because now that they are no longer uh, formal working members of the royal family, they don't have to clear this with the home office. This is just between the royal couple and their Santa Barbara neighbor, Oprah Winfrey, should make great TV. What about you? Who would you want in your huddle this week? I'm going to take us across the ocean into the Mediterranean basin. I'm going to pick Italy. Some may say Mario Draghi, who's the new prime minister. There have been, I don't know if you know this, but there have been 66 governments in Italy since the end of World War II. But I'm going to speak to somebody even more important than Mario Draghi for Italy, Stanley Tucci. He just launched a new show on CNN where he is exploring all the beauty, all the food, all the wine, and all the great passions that is Italy. So 
My pick for this week, who I want inside my huddle, is Stanley Tucci. You don't want him in your huddle. You just want to be in Italy right now. You're probably correct, but whatever. <laughs> I do. I can do what I can to get to Italy. That's <laughs> that's all that it is. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us again for another week of the huddle. We appreciate your comments and feedback, and above all, we're glad to welcome you into our huddle. We'll see you next week. <laughs>